Mike Waltz has been a warrior and a diplomat. In 2014, he wrote a fascinating book called Warrior Diplomat, of Green Berets battles from Washington to Afghanistan. In 2015, I'm proud to say, he was a non-resident senior fellow at FDD. In 2018, he was elected to Congress, taking the seat that had belonged to Ron DeSantis, who has since gone on to other pursuits. In the current session of Congress, Mike Waltz is serving on the House Armed Services Committee, HASC, the House Foreign Relations Committee, HVAC, and the House Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence. And if there's an acronym for that, it's too hard for me to pronounce. With these assignments, I would suggest he's thinking harder than ever about national security and foreign policy at what I'm convinced is a critical and dangerous moment, which is why we've invited him to chat with Bradley Bowman, Senior Director of FDD Center on Military and Political Power, and with me, Cliff May, FDD's President. We're pleased you're in the virtual room with us here on Foreign Policy. Congressman, welcome. Hello, Brad. Yeah, always good to be always good to be back uh, with with FDD. And uh, I, I just can't thank you and your team enough uh, on on what you put out in the space uh, in terms of the national and international conversation, but particularly the help that you provide uh, to my staff and to our committee staff. You really are an extension of us in many ways. Uh, in terms of just being a repository of, uh, of of knowledge on on some of these critical issues, so thank you right out the gate. Well, thank you for that. It's enormously gratifying for us to hear that. Uh, I, I've got to say, look, you've been on the you were on the show almost a year ago, as it happens. Time flies. I but nonetheless, I, briefly, you should tell your story to those who may not know much about you. I mean, among other things, you're the first Green Beret uh, elected to Congress. Yeah, so I, you know, I, I I joke there's been five Navy SEALs and only one of us. It just takes five of them to equal one of us, right? But no, in all uh, in, in 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 all seriousness, you know, I I decided when uh, when now Governor DeSantis uh, ran for his governorship uh, to to try to serve again. I have a business background. Uh, we built a a company from scratch to over 400 employees. I've served in combat. Uh, as a Green Beret, multiple tours in Afghanistan and across the Middle East and Africa, and then also had the honor of serving in the Bush White House uh, in both the Pentagon uh, and in the White House. So I've seen and helped craft policy uh, at that level as well. But what I found across the board was uh, people often uh, either thanking or shaking their finger at Congress uh, and how our laws were made or not. Uh, and things that needed to be and things that needed to be done better. So um, the other thing that that really drove me to run was we've gone to a record low in our nation's history in terms of veterans in Congress. We've gone from a historic high of 75 percent in the 70s, three quarters were vets to now around 15 percent. Actually, this last cycle, I've been recruiting my rear end off. We went up for the first time in several decades. And why does that matter? It's not that we agree on every issue. We certainly don't, but it's the ethos that we bring. If we're willing to to die for the red, white, and blue, then we can roll up our sleeves, take tough votes, be mission-oriented. And I can tell you what, bring the mentality to the table that in the foxhole or the plank or the tank or the ship, um, nobody cares about race, religion, social economic background. Our enemy's bullets certainly don't care. 
it's about mission and moving the country forward. You know, this is a bit of a digression, but I'm curious. You and Mike Gallagher, Dan Crenshaw, and maybe Tom Cotton. I mean, if I'm, am I perceiving incorrectly? First of all, these are the, these are the, the mem- some of the members I see as the smartest and who make the most sense of national security and, and foreign policy. I don't know that it's coincidence that they're all veterans. I think based on what you're saying, it's probably not. But also that you guys kind of see eye to eye. I mean, is, is am I right on that? More not a hundred percent, but. No, yeah. I mean, look, I mean, it's never 100 percent, but it's pretty darn close. And and I think it's two key factors. Number one, uh, America has to maintain its leadership role around the world. Uh, and uh, that doesn't mean we're the world's policemen. That doesn't mean we're you know trying to do nation building and build Switzerland everywhere we go. But it does mean that if we don't lead, that vacuum will be filled by our adversaries like Russia, like China, like Iran. Uh, and, or we will just have a completely fractured, multipolar world uh, in chaos, uh, and and that's you know not good for any American. So so that's one. And then number two, I think you know I, I'm safe to speak for them in that the number one job of the federal government is to keep the country safe. Uh, that's uh, that's protecting our borders, uh, and that is uh, deterring and if necessary defeating our adversaries around the world. Pretty much everything we do, Cliff, in Washington, I would rather state and locals do uh, rather than Washington, D.C., trying to take a, you know, a broad brush solution. And things are handled differently in uh, Arkansas than they are in Wisconsin or downtown Los Angeles than northeast Florida. Uh, And so that national security focus, I think, is what really drives us. And it's and it's laid out pretty explicitly in the Constitution. And that's why I'm on very national security focused uh, committees. It's usually important. I mean, just point this out, you know, the, before World War II, the British were sort of the world leaders. And when they had to pass the torch because after World War II, they could pass it to us, to the Americans. If we, right. if we decide we're going to pass the torch, there are plenty of good nations out there, but none of them are strong enough. There are plenty of strong nations out there, but none of them are good. So, and, and I think a lot of people don't understand if we give up leadership, which is what the communist Chinese and what Putin and the Islamic Republic, what they want, so they right. can take all of it or a piece of it or, or take it together. It's a very different world we're talking about giving to our children at that point. I'm not sure people, everybody understands that. No, you're absolutely right. And there is, there is an entity, uh, I think, for the first time in American history, uh, that not only has the desire, but the capability uh, to force us to pass the torch. Uh, and, and that's the Chinese Communist Party uh, with an economy starting to rival ours, if not already, a Navy that is larger than ours, a nuclear arsenal that they are tripling in size, a space force that is launching more into space than the, us and the rest of the world combined. Uh, and the, the sad thing, Cliff, not to you know dive too far down the the Chinese Communist Party route. But the sad thing is historians are going to look back and say, you idiots sold them the rope, the rope with which to hang you. Uh, They are doing all of it. Uh, They are financing their massive military buildup on our money, uh, on our technology, right, on uh, the backs of our universities and research centers. And, uh, you know, one of my missions here is to wake up the country to what's going on, because I do think we take for granted that America is the global superpower and it'll always be that way and the world will roughly look like it is today. That 
uh, we are dangerously close, close to not being the case. And I don't want my grandchildren growing up in a world led by Chinese communists or an America led by Democrat socialists. So uh, that's the fight before us. And, you know, I, and, and, and for those who don't know, your, your allusion there is to a quote attributed to Lenin, which is when it comes time to hang the capitalists, they'll sell us the rope. What he didn't realize is that we'd finance the purchase of that rope as well uh, at, yeah. <laughs> at Wall Street. But let's put a pin. We'll put a pin in China and go to Ukraine and Russia. Because uh, interestingly, it's it's one issue that doesn't divide neatly along partisan or even ideological lines, right? Because on, on the left, group, groups like Code Pink and Win Without War they don't support the Ukrainians. It's all America's fault. The Progressive Caucus. In the House yeah. appears to be divided, but most Democrats probably support the provision of military assistance to help the Ukrainians uh, to resist Putin's attempt to conquer and rule them. Now, among conservatives, this is it's interesting. Tucker Carlson, for example, has nothing but disdain for Ukrainian President Zelensky and not much sympathy for the cause of Ukrainian freedom and independence. Mitch McConnell, Senator McConnell, is adamant about the need to support. Former British Prime Minister Johnson says double down because the West either stands behind the principle that bullies can't crush and consume their neighbors or relinquish that principle right. with ramifications for Taiwan or Islamic Republic. Maybe give a couple of seconds on, on, on your take on where you are right now on what we should, what we are doing, what we should be doing, what we shouldn't be doing. Sure. Sure. You know, and, and I certainly understand where where uh, Tucker and others are coming from. And I, I agree with them, actually, in the sense that, of course, the U.S. border is the most important border and Biden isn't doing enough. Not right. Doing anything uh, I can tell. Yeah. Yeah, right. Not doing, not doing a damn thing. And of course, we should be uh, uh, focused there. And yes, absolutely. Uh, the Chinese Communist Party is the greatest threat. Uh, and we should be focused there as well. But we have to, you know, where, where I kind of part ways is we have to be able to walk and, and, and chew gum. Uh, and it's not an either or proposition uh, because by doing nothing in Ukraine, you are actually inviting a situation where we will have to commit U.S. troops. Uh, and that is if Putin slices through Ukraine uh, and realizes his stated goal of reconstituting the old Soviet Union. You will drag in NATO countries and then you will drag in the United States. So at this point, if the Ukrainians are bravely willing to do the fighting and dying and all they're asking for are the beans and bullets, uh, then I think that's something that we should continue to provide. However, uh, there needs to be appropriate oversight. Uh, and I have real concerns there. Uh, the Europeans are not doing nearly enough. This can't all be on uh, the United States. I find it appalling uh, how German Germany and their oil and gas situation, I think, largely led to a situation where Putin felt he could get away with this with their approach to Nord Stream and their dependency on gas. And they're walking away from nuclear and their obsession with their own Green New Deal. Uh, so they have not delivered a fraction of what they have promised in terms of military aid. And then the final piece is we do have to be careful about our own industrial base and our own stocks and supplies. Now, this is a nuanced answer, but you know what you need in a land war is different than what you need in a war in the Pacific. Uh, but there is some overlap, and we are watching that closely from uh, from the Armed Services Committee. Look, at the end of the day, in my view, it's a pay now or pay later 
uh, and that if we don't help the Ukrainians now, we will get drug into this as, as Putin continues his march. And then finally, Cliff, you know, look, let's look who his allies are right now. I mean, he is relying on Iran. That relationship is closer than ever. He's relying on North Korea. Uh, and at least to what we could tell for non-military aid, he's relying on China. Uh, so this is uh, part of an overall struggle uh, for who is going to continue to lead in terms of our values, the West or the authoritarian regimes uh, that are more and more aligned. You know, I'm curious, Non Brad, I haven't, I haven't had a chance to ask you about this either, but uh, have, have you guys seen Henry Kissinger's latest proposal? It's it's different from what he was saying earlier. What here's what he's saying in a nutshell. He's saying, okay, here's what we do at this point. We bring Ukraine into NATO, but we give Putin some territorial concessions. Presumably, he means Putin gets to keep Crimea and some of Donbas, some of eastern Ukraine. It, now, it seems to me that's an interesting. It's it's a real gamble because Putin could say, okay, I'll take the deal. Um, as long as I get keep Crimea, I get some of Donbas. I can I, I can say I won something. But Putin could also say, you know what, you can you can say all you want that Ukraine's part of NATO. I still say it's part of Russia. So I'm going to now continue to, um, to I'm going to continue to, to, to my, my war on Ukraine. And if it's NATO, fine, you do what you want to do, because then if NATO doesn't respond, well, that's the end of NATO. If NATO does of- respond. <laughs> Well, now you do have a, a you do have a world war, which the U.S. will have to take the lead because Germany is not about to. So, anyhow, I'm, I'm, I'm interested. I'll, I'll give Mike a minute to think about it if you haven't. Brad, if you have, I won't give you any. Time. No, I, I, I'm fine. <laughs> uh, look, I did not agree with Kissinger's earlier proposals, uh, but you know, in that sense, it, I, I think you hit the nail on the head. That is a tremendous roll of the dice. Uh, I do not think there is popular support in the United States for U.S. boots on the ground defending uh, and dying uh, and fighting uh, Russians um, over Ukrainian territory. And if you basically back yourself into a situation uh, by pulling them into NATO where that's going to happen, I, I, I'm not sure I could support that. Uh, what I think is likely, but the question I keep asking of the administration on kind of the how does this end, is uh, Zelensky will continue to have uh, the momentum to at least get Russia back to the 2014 line um, and uh, and hopefully get better access to the Black Sea through Mariupol uh, and and that land bridge that Russia has created. If they're successful there, uh, he may then be in a position where he can go to the negotiating table domestically, politically. But if he drives beyond that, uh, my question to the administration is if Putin is saying that Eastern Donbass uh, uh, and Crimea are part of his nuclear umbrella, are we going to support a Ukrainian offensive beyond those red lines? Uh, and to complete is our position that we're going to keep providing aid until Russia is completely expelled uh, from both the Donbass and Crimea, which in my meetings with Zelensky, is what he said he has to do to maintain his own domestic uh, political support. That's a big, big question. And uh, one the administration either hasn't come to a decision on or won't tell us. It seems to me, tell me if you you think I'm wrong, that the only way you get Putin to seriously negotiate is if he feels, oh gosh, I'm losing this war, or if he feels this is a stalemate 
and I'm going to be hemorrhaging uh, lives, or my men, I'm going to be hemorrhaging weapons. I can't have that. As long as he feels there's a chance that he can win, there's no reason for him to want yeah. to negotiate seriously. So those who keep saying, and there are those, particularly on the right, I've had conversations with them, I think you and Brad probably have, no, we got to push Zelensky into negotiating. Well, you're pushing him into suing for peace and surrendering. Brad, you're, you're nodding your head. Let me let you get a word in edgewise here. I know it's hard. No, thanks, Cliff. Yeah, Congressman, sure. good to see you again. Thanks for your service in uniform, your service on Capitol Hill, and congrats on all the great committee assignments. It's, in my experience, at least in the Senate, it's pretty rare to have someone on so many incredible committees. I was uh, MLA, National Security Advisor, for all six years of Kelly Ayotte's role as the lead Republican on the Readiness Subcommittee. So I understand the okay. importance of that committee and yeah. eager to be helpful and and so glad we have someone who kind of gets it uh, leading that committee. Um, you may recall you were, you were at our, our launch event in May 2019 when we launched our Center on Military and Political Power. And there was a, a great panel between you and Alyssa Slotkin speaking of bipartisanship that I encourage folks to go back and look at. And, you know, for what it's worth, just a quick digression, Cliff, if I may, I completely agree with you, Congressman, on the, on, on the value of veterans in Congress like you uh, serving as members. In my experience, just kind of watching as a staffer, you know, you know, all, you know they, they they tend to bring a clarity regarding our adversaries. You know, they they didn't there weren't wasn't moral confusion about who the good guys and the bad guys were. That what we have here is worth defending. Uh, they understood the vital role of hard power, and they understood that it's more important to put country over party. And and those sounds like cliches, but in my experience, generally speaking, that's what veterans bring to Congress. Um, your comment about Europeans, not I, I completely agree with you on Germany. I was very critical about uh, Germans not being reluctant to provide arms to Ukraine to defend itself. Of course, they flipped that decision. I've been very frustrated lately on the Swiss and some of the, uh, the reluctance there we've seen regarding ammunition and so forth. But as I'm sure you'll agree, you know, we, we have the, the Baltic countries, Poland, the United Kingdom and others that are doing some 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 great work in supporting right. Ukraine. On the the Kissinger proposal, to me, this is just the latest reminder that uh, Kissinger does Cliff does not have a monopoly on wisdom, <laughs> and it reminds me a little bit of late night television where you see it was a Sir maps a lot, you know, the British colonialists mapping Africa. I mean, right. how arrogant! I mean, if I if I can just say it, how arrogant for us to sit in the safety of the United States and Western Europe and tell Ukrainians what their border is going to look like. I mean, that's if they're willing to fight. And, and on behalf of our common interests, territories are national sovereignty, the rule of law. I think it's really quite something for us to say what their border should be. And, and what a dangerous precedent is the congressman has already suggested for autocrats looking on in, in Beijing and elsewhere to conclude, you know what, the Americans will put up a good effort for a year, but then they'll lose interest or they'll tire and then they'll be willing to trade territory for peace. You know, and, and the last thing I'll say, it reminds me a little bit of Winston Churchill's quote that an appeaser is one who feeds a crocodile hoping he'll eat him last. Let's just feed Putin, you know, Crimea, a little bit of the Donbass. You know, it's just a little bit of the Donbass. Maybe he'll eat the rest of Europe later. Well, you know, come on, have we learned anything from history? So let me just play devil's advocate because not least because Congressman Waltz will be chairing the Hask uh, Committee on Military Readiness. Because, Brad, some of the people who disagree with you, disagree with me, would say, yeah, but we don't have a defense industrial base that can produce the weapons we need. And if we're giving all these weapons to Ukraine to protect themselves, we're going to be running out of the weapons we need. They're not always the same for uh, for the possibility um, of, of a conflict in 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 this in, with with China over Taiwan. We were certainly going to be losing deterrence. What, Brad, give quick, and then we'll go to the car. What, what's your response to the idea? We can't, we just can't do it. We can't, we can't chew gum and walk at the same time. We just don't have the, the ability. 
My my short answer is I think the premise is false. I, I think we can do both. Uh, I think that our uh, support for Ukraine is not charity. It's a wise investment in our national security interests and universal democratic principles, rule of law. You can't redraw borders with military force. But with that said, Mark Montgomery and I have been writing and saying for a while that we do not have the defense industrial base we need, that we are in the midst of a munitions capacity production crisis that's only going to get more difficult with time. But positive steps are being taken, including the most recent National Defense Authorization Act. We got to fund that and we got to implement that quickly to ensure that we can modernize our forces, provide Ukraine the means they need to defend themselves while making uh, Taiwan a porcupine. This is difficult. It will require robust Article One branch oversight, but it's doable. And, and Congressman, by the way, you should, you should feel free. Do not be shy calling on Brad and Admiral Montgomery. To uh, to do work for you if it's helpful in terms of research on this because the defense industrial base is going to be is, is one of the things you're thinking about now very hard right yeah no, absolutely and you know I would just say you know I I agree uh, largely with what with, with your approach Brad um, I will also say though that maintaining domestic political support here uh, for this effort is incredibly important it's critical. Uh, right for us to continue to vote for these funds, uh, and and the administration's policy can't be open ended. We'll continue to do these drawdowns. We'll continue to pass these supplementals until Zelensky decides the time is right to go uh, to go to the negotiating table, or until Zelensky meets his goals. Uh, even though they are largely uh, in line with ours, we need to have our own criteria. Uh, even if those are internal and not necessarily advertised for our adversaries to know. Uh, and part of that has got to be uh, the the European countries that aren't stepping up to do much, much more. I mean, we need to see that demonstration uh, from Europe, I think, for, you know, as I go home to my districts so on the industrial base, welcome your support. Uh, again, you know, what is needed for the stocks that are needed to support a land war, uh, in Europe uh, are in many ways different than what is needed to support the Indo-Pacific potential uh, conflict there. Uh, but uh, the broader point is with these high-end weapons in particular, uh, we are not positioned to surge. Uh, and I welcome any work on how we incentivize industry to do that. Uh, how we, on the one hand, modernize to the next generation of weaponry, but on the other hand, have stockpiles of what we have now. Uh, but we can't have it just sitting there going to waste either. And so how we kind of hit that sweet spot and how we incentivize industry to do this in a way that makes sense for their business and isn't kind of these clunky mandates uh, is a lot, obviously a lot more complicated um, you know, than, than at first look. I mean, it is complicated. Is is the simple answer not that we need an administration? I don't think it's going to be this one. I wish it would, but maybe the next to say, all right, everything can't be the highest priority. And the highest priority may be that we have to be the arsenal of democracy. We have to support those who are willing to fight common enemies. We have to have the means to do that. So we're going to spend more money on that and maybe not make it a high priority or a highest priority to transition from fossil fuels to solar and wind, which to, to not say that climate change is an emergency, it, it, that it's a crisis, because it is not based on, even based on what the UN is saying, we're talking, we're, it's simply not a crisis. It's a challenge. I think you can say that. 
right? We can talk about that or we can leave that, but it's not a crisis. And you have to decide what is a, what is a, it's, you know, it's a little like you're from Florida, you're scuba diving, you're running out of air. There's a, there's a great white shark circling above you. And you know what? You got an ingrown toenail. Now you got to figure out what's my priority right now, right? And, and I don't think we're, we're doing that. And, and, I, and, and I'll transition it this way because General Michael Minahan, who oversees the Air Force's fleet of transport and refueling, he wrote a memo, I'm sure you guys know, but I want to make sure our listeners know. He wrote a memo and the guy that said, I hope I'm wrong, but my gut tells me we will fight, meaning in the Indo- in, in, with, with, with China in 2025. What's your, what's your take on that, Congressman? So, you know, a, a couple of things to unpack there, Cliff. Yes, I would I would welcome, it would be a breath of fresh air if we had an administration uh, that was focused on war fighting, uh, driving our young men and women, our military to have a warrior mentality uh, that was more worried about the standards with which it takes uh, to defend this nation rather than checking boxes on black, white, or brown, or Christian, Jew, you know, whatever, whatever they're these other things that they're worried about um, and did not come to the Congress as the current secretary of the army did with a plan to take all of our tanks and fighting vehicles uh, and Humvees all electric by 2035, right? I want the most lethal army, not the least carbon emitting army, but that is a serious proposal and a serious priority for this administration. What's so dangerous? Look, I'm from Florida. Our beaches are rising. Our flooding is increasing. We have to deal with the changing climate. We have to be more resilient. All for that. However, when you have the president of the United States, as he did just this week, say that climate change is more dangerous than a nuclear exchange, our adversaries, particularly China, see that and say, Number one, we can now use that as leverage because you have such a discordant China policy from this administration. The national security team puts it as our most dangerous adversary, but their climate and other folks say, no, 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 that's less dangerous. Uh, And so they use that as trade space. They use that to gain concessions. Uh, And oh, by the way, they're gobbling up uh, the world's critical minerals and gobbling up 75% of the global battery market. So not only are they using it to achieve their national security ends, they're making money off of uh, the back end. And at the end of the day, uh, when uh, if, if Chairman Xi realizes his stated goal of becoming the global superpower in his lifetime, uh, then uh, I don't think he's going to give a damn about climate. So how about we uh, maintain our leadership role in the world? We deter him uh, and then you can get to those longer term, uh, longer term threats. But it is I mean, it is it is really all over a place and a bit of a mess. Uh, And then, you know, finally, I'll say. um, From a readiness standpoint, we are in a true recruiting crisis. Uh, We have had the worst year last year in recruiting since Vietnam. And it's only getting worse. It's not recovering. Uh, and I've ha- I have had and I'm going to have a lot of tough conversations uh, with our military leaders. Look, their recruiting base tends to be the Midwest and the South. Uh, those men and women want to jump out of doors, kick it, you know, jump out of planes and kick in doors and uh, defend cyber networks and, and do great things. Uh, all of this other nonsense that that the Pentagon has been focused on isn't working. Uh, and um, uh, we we have to write this ship before before it's too late. 
you know, you you mentioned that by moving, by attempting to transition to renewables now, while renewables are dependent on uh, lithium, cobalt, rare earth minerals that China processes, wherever they're, they're mined, they're mined in Africa, they're mined in South America, they're mined, by the way, in environmentally damaging ways and ways that use child labor. We're ignoring that. We're ignoring the fact that they're then processed in China. And so we're making China into the OPEC of renewables, which is a bad, probably a bad idea. And by the way, you mentioned something else. I just because this is your issue. Just the other day, you sent a letter to Lloyd Austin, the Secretary of Defense, um, requesting a survey of all Army, Navy, Air Force, ROTC programs at private schools. Um, why? Because all these private schools may be owned by Chinese subsidiaries with links to the Communist Party. And if the Chinese subsidiaries, they absolutely always inevitably do have links to the Communist Party. I thought you might want to say a word about that because I, you know, we at FDD have called a lot of attention to the Confucius Institutes, which are not about, you know, learning Chinese culture and dance and wonderful things, but it's about indoctrinating kids in, in, in colleges. We've And we've managed to get some colleges to get rid of those. But this is something that, I gotta I say, I wasn't aware of it until I saw your letter. Yeah, so look, I mean, it's not only in higher education, through the Confucius Institutes, through the flooding of our uh, university labs with Chinese researchers, uh, and through the, the billions of dollars that are flowing into the university endowments, um, uh, which we're just now, you know, really getting a taste of when we're seeing how much money Chinese money flowed into the Biden Center, the University of Pennsylvania, uh, and they're seeking to influence higher education. It's also in our secondary schools and our high schools with Chinese backed private equity buying into uh, our private schools, many of whom are situated in our technology sectors in Florida, North Carolina, California. Also have junior ROTC programs, hence my letter to the defense secretary asking about that. Uh, but it, it serves two purposes for the Chinese Communist Party. One, they can fill the they can send their elites, the children of their elites, uh, to these schools. Uh, and and number two, uh, they can then influence our children on you know everything from the ills of capitalism to the benefits of of socialism with Chinese characteristics. So uh, the, the reason this, this adversary is so dangerous is not that their missile is faster than ours, although that is increasingly the case, it's that they have flooded the zone in so many sectors of our society with their money from Hollywood to Wall Street, to our pension funds, uh, to our sports industry, to our universities. Uh, and every time we start taking a tough stand, and I think this is why the Democrats are struggling. Those even that are national security minded is all of those entities that they care so much about their base, so to speak, start saying, whoa, 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 time out, because they're all making so much money. <laughs> and and uh, it is uh, it. We've got to have a wake up call as a country. Brad, did you want to get a word in edgeways on this one, too? Yeah, no, no, thanks, Cliff. The, the congressman's uh, saying so many good things. I'm excited just to respond to a couple. One, you know, it, I, I really, going back quickly to Ukraine, I'll tie it back to Taiwan. I completely agree on, on the importance of maintaining domestic support for what we're doing in Ukraine. I mean, we're a democracy after all. It taught American politics and foreign policy and grad strategy at West Point. I get it, for sure. And that's why, frankly, I think the comments of people like Tucker Carlson are so, so unhelpful. Because he's just he's just ill-informed and wrong on Ukraine. 
uh, and suggesting again that it's charity rather than a smart investment. And I think we need to continue to speak the truth to the American people that we had two world wars start in the first half of the 20th century and that we, when someone tries to change borders in Europe with force, that's a bad thing, not just for, for Europeans, but for us. And when you have people in Beijing watching, we don't want to leave them with the impression, as you've said so eloquently, Congressman, that, you know, that they can seize territory, then sue for peace, sue for peace. Sue for peace. So I think, uh, as you said so well, the ramifications go far beyond Europe. And I just quickly add, uh, we did some research here at FDD regarding what Europeans have done to transfer arms to Ukraine. And by our calculation, European NATO NATO allies have transferred 21, roughly, very roughly, $21.7 billion of equipment to Ukraine in terms of the price it would take in American equipment to replace that. And so doing that would increase the readiness of our European allies allies, it would increase interoperability, it would strengthen our defense industrial base and incentivize more investment in R&D, and it would provide us much needed industrial capacity that we're going to use to help in the Indo-Pacific. And so that's all good for America. And uh, and, and so I think uh, it's important for Tucker Carlson and people like that to be mindful of that. And and I, for my part, want to uh, counter the idea that um, that uh, that, you know, this this is this is just something we're doing out of generosity for ungrateful Europeans. Um, but, you know, coming back and, and the last thing I'll say is it, it's really something for me when I see not not you, Congressman, but, other, you know, some people who call themselves conservatives trying to co-opt the legacy of Reagan to be soft on Russia. It's like I'm old enough to remember Reagan and Reagan was a hawk on Russia. And uh, and it's really quite something to see some conservatives, I would say isolationists, trying to co-opt his legacy to put forward policies that are anathema to what I think Reagan would have supported. Just just my thought. Maybe I'm wrong. Um, both of you served in Afghanistan. So I want to I make sure we can talk a little bit about that. And, I, you know, pretty much everyone agrees that the withdrawal Biden did was done badly. That's an easy conversation to have. Not everyone agrees with people like me who believe it was a bad idea to withdraw at all anytime soon, that we needed to be there for a much longer time, that we actually had achieved quite a bit there in the sense of frustrating the ambitions of the Taliban, uh, holding down al-Qaeda, um, creating uh, what I hate to call, but I will, safe spaces for people who, like for women who wanted to oh, go to school and learn, at least in the urban areas, well, are you with me or or or, or not on that, uh, Congressman? Well, I, I'm with uh, what the actually Biden's Pentagon recommended to him was that we had a residual force. There. Residual force, yeah. uh, right? That wasn't out there. I mean, but here's where I think you know people who don't pay attention to this all the time get confused. They weren't advocating. I'm not advocating that they were out there pulling triggers. Uh, they were providing intelligence, targeting, surveillance logistics support, advisory on how you do planning and kind of, you know, and, and more complex operations. And importantly, it was a symbol uh, uh, to the Afghan military, to the government, to the people that the United States hadn't abandoned, abandoned them. And, you know, for those who say 20 years was too long to have, you know, 2,500 troops there uh, or the residual force, you know, look, we've had troops, uh, 30,000. Uh, plus in South Korea for 70 years, we still have 50,000 in uh, Japan. I point out that we've had Green Berets in Colombia uh, for nearly 40 years, taking on helping the Colombian military, not doing it themselves, but advising and assisting the Colombian military 
we can go we can go down the list. So I mean, the, to to just say yank them out and hope and pray that Al Qaeda, ISIS, and the Taliban are now going to be nice guys. Uh, I think was is dangerous and frankly irresponsible. And then final point, I'll point to we've we've seen this movie recently before, and that was in Iraq when Obama yanked us out of Iraq in 2011. Had no follow-on plan to keep a lid on terrorism there. And three years later, what do we have? The explosion of ISIS, uh, a caliphate the size of Austria, Americans being beheaded on international uh, television, attacks across Europe, inspired attacks at San Bernardino and Pulse nightclub and everywhere here in the United States. And what do we have to do? We had to send troops back to deal with it. And they're still largely there today. Uh, the the fear and the thing that has me so upset, aside from abandoning Americans and abandoning our allies, is that if we have to do that going back to Afghanistan, Cliff, we have no bases in country, no bases in the region, no allies on the ground to work with, no government to work with, as at least we did in in Baghdad. The situation is going to be far more expensive and far worse. And what I can't have anybody explained to me that just said, yank them out too hard, too long, too far was, well, you know, the bad guys didn't get the memo that you thought or Biden thought this should be over with on a date certain. Uh, and it is something that one of the reasons being on the Intelligence Committee and the Armed Services Committee and the Foreign Affairs Committee uh, that we are going to investigate what happened and why, but also drive this administration to gee, I don't know, have a backup plan before we have another 9-11 or Pulse nightclub or attack on, on U.S. soil. You know, it, it, it's a mystery to me This is why the current administration or the previous administration didn't make clear to the American public we had a combat mission in Afghanistan. That's finished. Now we have an assist mission, train mission, aid mission. This is very different. We will continue because we have allies there. We will not abandon because we don't abandon our allies. And by the way, that's a problem in terms of Ukraine. If within a couple of years we abandon our allies in Afghanistan, abandon our allies in Ukraine, especially after having supported them for a while and getting tired, the message it's more than a message. It's a reality now that I know your time is very short. So I'll, I'll, this will be a, my exit question for you. Um, are we in a new Cold War? H.R. McMaster thinks so. The historian Neil Ferguson thinks so. Our friend Mike Gallagher thinks so. Because if we say, yeah, this is a new Cold War, and it's a more challenging one for all kinds of reasons than the last one, well, that means we need very different policies than we have right now if we're to do two things. One, keep the Cold War from getting hot, a lot of deterrence, and two, not lose the Cold War a few years down the road. So I'll let you talk a little bit about that. Brad, if you have a final question or so, because I know your staff has a very busy day planned for you. <laughs> yeah. So go ahead, Brad, and then, and then I'll just. Oh, I'll, yeah. I was deferring to the, uh, the congressman. Well, the congressman speaks with great authority uh, on Afghanistan because of his service and experience there. I, I would just highlight a quote that some of us have heard before, President Joe Biden, August 2021. What interest do we have in Afghanistan at this point with Al Qaeda gone? We want Afghan. We went to Afghanistan for the express purpose of getting rid of Al Qaeda in Afghanistan, and we did. That was wrong. That was factually false in August 2021. It was wrong in April when he made his announcement, and it's more wrong than ever. We now have in Afghanistan what we had on September 10th, 2001, right before that horror, horrible terrorist attack. 
an Al-Qaeda Taliban terror syndicate, syndicate ruling Afghanistan with a safe haven. So, uh, you know, I, I say, let's stop deluding ourselves uh, about our adversaries. Let's see the world as it is and go from there. And if we can't look at the truth first, then we're going to have bad policies that follow. And that's why I think the Afghanistan investigation is so important. We got to end this self-delusion in Washington. We're going to get more catastrophes like that, whether it's with China, Russia, or um, Iran or North Korea. Brad, I would even I would even take that a step further and say it is worse than September 10th, 2001, uh, because at least then we had the Northern Alliance uh, allies on the ground to work with. We had bases in Central Asia and Uzbekistan and Kyrgyzstan to operate from. Uh, and uh, we hadn't armed our adversary with seven to eight billion dollars of our own damn equipment that we're now going to have to fight through. And they didn't have, uh, you know, a, a, a very functioning international airport, which my understanding right now, they're sending terrorists around the world with stamped official Afghan passports uh, for with, with which to, to spread their terror. With so the collusion that, of the Haqqani network, <laughs> by the way. Yeah, <laughs> right. Yeah, right. Yeah. So, uh, and, oh, by the way, a populist, uh, that had all of their hopes and dreams dashed by American abandonment. So getting them to work with us again uh, is going to be that harder. And Cliff, to answer your question uh, and and depress all of your <laughs> viewers and listeners even further and make them want to drink even more than we already do. Um, yes, we are in a Cold War. Uh, the Chinese Communist Party entered into it decades ago. If you look definitionally, in uh, an adversary that's using all elements of national power, diplomatic, informational, military, and economic uh, to supplant, suppress, defeat us. Uh, that is exactly what the CCP is doing. And they're openly talking about it. They're talking about a timeline with which they're going to do it. Uh, by the 100th anniversary of uh, the Chinese Communist Party, she is accelerating that, I think, for his own personal legacy goals. Uh, and uh, we have got to wake up to it uh, because we've never faced a whole of society approach. We've never faced an adversary that can turn off our pharmaceuticals uh, or turn off uh, the means with which we're powering our economy. Uh, you know, that's battery that's battery based. Uh, we've we've and we've never faced one with a navy and other elements that are larger and newer uh, than than ours. So uh, yeah. You're right. Uh, and then we have an administration that's willing to kind of concede all of that to get them to emit less carbon. Um, so it is um, it, it's the, I think it is the existential question of our time. And uh, to General Menahan's uh, memo to his soldiers at Air Mobility Command, I do think we are in a, a heightened window of danger um, between the Taiwan elections in early 24, our elections in late 24, some domestic issues that she is facing uh, economically and um, from a government control standpoint that could cause them to accelerate. Uh, Taiwan is moving, not fast enough, but in the right direction to porcupine. That may cause she to accelerate even further uh, before that happens. And our own military is going to face a trough as we reset and modernize from the Middle East wars. Uh, and right around 26 to 28, arguably 2030, is when we will be at our lowest and the Chinese military will be uh, at its peak. So the next president could be uh, a major 
wartime president. Uh, and, you know, God help if it help us if it's the current one. And, and, and President Biden has said on several occasions, and he's had it, and his staff is walking back, that it's not strategic ambiguity whether we'd be involved in a war to save Taiwan, that we would do so. And people have praised him. That's good that he's saying that. I would argue that if you're going to will that end, you must will the means. I actually, hawkish as I am, I don't want American troops or American sailors fighting a war that, as Brad would say, is a fair fight, and especially one where the war game show will lose. If we're going to lose, give it up. There's no point giving it up after three aircraft carriers have been sunk. Either you prepare and deter and then win if you can't deter, or you don't bother and you give it and, and you give it up. No, that's right, Cliff. I, I, I've got to run, but I'll just end with this is um, is this is where deterrence matters. And every time she is looking across that ocean, uh, I want him to say not this year uh, because they're not ready. They believe Taiwan is getting ready. They believe the United States is still uh, a dominant and capable power. But he also has to look at our economy uh, and 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 see that we are also capable of competing because his version of victory is we step aside like the Soviet Union did and just say we can't afford to compete anymore and give it up, uh, uh, as you said. So that is why I am pushing for us to go to strategic clarity. We need to have those debates now. We need to explain to the American people why this is in our interest now uh, and why we must have robust uh, defense. And we need to explain to our allies. I don't see how we can expect Japan, Philippines, Australia, India, and others to side with us uh, if we don't make that case beforehand. Once those amphibious ships start rolling across the Taiwan Strait, it's too late uh, and, and, we're, and we're out of time. But I'm out of time as well. I think you go vote. <laughs> so <laughs> great to be with you all. And God bless you at FTD. Thank you so much. Anything we can do to help, we want to. You've got you've got an important and challenging assignments ahead, and we hope to be in close touch. We're here for you anytime. Thanks again, Congressman Waltz. Thanks, Brad, for joining this discussion. Thanks to all of you who have been with us today here on Foreign Policy. Thank you for listening to Foreign Policy. If you found the program worthwhile, we suggest you subscribe to Foreign Policy on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever you prefer to listen to your podcasts. Send us your feedback, your questions, your ideas to foreignpodicy at fdd.org. For more information about this episode and others and about our distinguished guests, visit us online at fdd.org. Until next time, I'm Cliff May, and you've been listening to Foreign Policy.